This is Word for the Week, exploring a balanced view of Scripture for the wholeness of life, for wisdom, understanding, and growth. Welcome, welcome to Season 2, Episode 8 of Word for the Week, and our word today is marriage. So, how'd you land on marriage? Well, it's a long and twisted tale, but not really. It's how it came about in the... (laughs) And the short answer is this, is that we're in a series in 1 Timothy right now and in chapter 3, and and marriage is just one of those things that comes up, really. And 1 Timothy 3 is the chapter that deals with the standards of church leadership. Uh, Correct, it does. And in that leadership, the Apostle Paul sets out um, standards or qualifiers for both the um, elders and the deacons and... uh, uh, the principles are kind of echoed in both. And one of the biggest is how they, uh, quote, rule their house. Hmm. And uh, so that's a whole conversation on its own. So we're going right. to take that one on today. As a matter of fact, not even all of that. Hmm. We're not talking about parenting, but marriage. So. Right. right. And just to be clear, um, there's important principles for every believer. And this chapter goes well beyond, mm-hmm. you know, just men in church leadership, doesn't it? Right. It's, uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with both uh, men and women here. For example, in deacon, in the in the Greek word uh, diakonos, we, we don't have a deacon and deaconess like in English. Diakonos would have applied to both the men and the women. Mm-hmm. And um, so... How about you explain the definition a little bit? What, what, how do you define diakonos? Well, we know that the first assemblies of the church were in a Jewish community. Right. So it's not surprising they continued a number of Jewish models of doing things. Right. One case of that is what the care of the needy. Yeah, in the care of the needy. So here we have uh, the ancient Jewish community. How did they take care of things? Okay, according to the Bible scholar William Barclay, it went like this. Each Friday, two official collectors went around to the markets and called for donations of money and goods for the poor. Mm-hmm. Then a committee of two or more would distribute to the needy in two different ways. Okay. The first one was kaluv, meaning mm-hmm. the basket. And this gift basket, if you will, contained 14 meals, two meals a day for a week. For a family to receive this, the household had to have less than a week's worth of food in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, the second way, meaning the tray, this was uh, an emergency provision containing just enough food for the day. Hey, you know something too, I, I was looking at, the, I think it was Chicago, there was a soup kitchen or whatever care for the homeless and it was actually called tanhui is that well yeah. and yeah that would have been it you know yeah a one meal to keep them keep them going going for the day yeah okay diakonos mm-hmm. oh got it um and that was really where we get our you know, the deacon, the deaconess right. became the distributors in the Christian church. Mm-hmm. And as they adopted the system, of course, and often areas of service wouldn't be appropriate for just a man to go or, mm-hmm. or at least go by himself. So right. women were involved, too. There were lots of Billy Grahams back in that day. <laughs> you know, it's a Billy Graham said he'd never, you know, put himself in that compromising situation. So with that in mind, we can see that the standards will, would apply to both men and women. And right. before we go any further, let's deal with what it means to 
rule one's house, as it says in First Timothy three four and twelve. And twelve, yeah, in that. I know we we end up with all of these Greek words we keep throwing out, but it's just it trying really to understand to, yeah. Yeah, the nuance of what they were really saying. And uh, proistomi was the word for rule. And if you were to look at their definition of it, it means to, to be set over, mm-hmm. but to superintend, to preside over, uh, to be a protector of, mm-hmm. of a group, to be a guardian to give aid, to uh, care for, to give special attention to, or to maintain whatever this you were over. And, and, and knowing those words like that, I mean, that's why we do the, the Greek, because when you say rule, rule over, yeah. you don't automatically think of protector and guarding and giving aid and caring for. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I don't see words like dictate, dominate, um, tyrannize, lord it over, bully, commander, toss around. Right, which is so. a, a lot of things that come to mind, and especially in a non, non-God non culture. Right. Uh, but those words aren't in there. Yeah. And um, the whole idea that Paul's getting at, the idea of, uh, in Scripture for marriage is, isn't to, meant to be either to battle for or to... Um, uh, assert the right of dominance over the other person. That's simply not in there at mm. all. In fact, there's a great passage where Paul details out, and and the modern ears has to really sift through this a bit, but it details out what the Christian marriage is meant to be. And, and he's telling the newer converts in the um, uh, Greek town of Ephesus, right. and I thought perhaps you could read this. Uh, it's really a summary of, of the passage. Right. Ephesians 5, through 27. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So, how does this work in a, in an arrangement in you know marriage? Marrying I mean, the I, practical side of yeah. things. Well, you know, we looked at the word rule and to say we're getting down the idea where this came from. Hmm. Um, uh, there's another word in there that people might um, um, bristle at the word submit. That's a bad right. word in modern language, but. The hupotesto, the the word in the Greek. I'm not even gonna try that. Uh, me either. <laughs> um, it was really. Um, it, it had a meaning of its own too that was very important, and and I thought maybe you could read the um, the official uh, Greek definition of this sure. word. Sure. Um, this word was a Greek military term meaning to arrange troop divisions mm-hmm. in a military fashion under the command of a leader. Mm-hmm. And in a non-military use, it was a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, and carrying mm-hmm. a burden. Yeah. And of course, uh, for me, it struck uh, two things that I thought were worth sharing. And big surprise, the first one deals with airplanes. <laughs> Surprise! But uh, in uh, multi-crew cockpits, um, and, and this can be smaller or larger airlines, whatever, 
a lot of times in the schedule, some uh, there can be a case where two captains have to fly together. Mm-hmm. And so that means one of the captains, and, and sometimes it'll be on a, a route going there and coming back and they switch roles, but one of the captains has to be the first officer role. Mm-hmm. And um, he may even be the more experienced pilot of the two, but he understands in that seat, when sitting in the right seat, um, that he is taking on the role of, uh, uh, of the subordinate. Right. And that then he's taking on the the uh, carrying the burden of the support tasks. It just wouldn't work any other way, would well, it? No, <laughs> two it, pilots just trying. Yeah, two captains. Two captains. Uh, yeah. It'd be very dangerous to to have two captains. So you know this idea of taking on um, uh, voluntarily taking on right. the sub, the, uh, the submissive role or the whatever you want to call it the support role mm-hmm. uh, is no no. Um, uh, slight on somebody's uh, character or their superiority or anything like that. So, you know, that was one thing that came to mind. The other is, is that if we look at how things parallel, the role that's put in with the word submission really is a parallel to the role of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. When you look at how he's a witness in the whole uh, Trinity thing that goes on. So, there's the thing. If in this whole system a man parallels the role of Christ, the woman parallels the role of the Holy Spirit, and mm-hmm. and and that's no small role. So, no. so how in practical terms does the husband parallel Christ? Yeah, if, if we're saying that's the case, well, right. says so the first clue in is in how he is to love. He is to love the wife. Okay, and we know that Greek has four basically operative words for love, meaning different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one in here that could even be appropriate, you know, it would be appropriate, there would be the word eros. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, all us husbands, <laughs> we love that word. Uh, but the word that is used by Paul here is not the word eros or philios or any of that. I guess which word it is. Probably agape, right? Well, agape, which you you stop and think of it, is uh, a love that is the, the highest moral love, the mm-hmm. highest love in a social situation. So the husband, and if you transliterate uh, what Paul is telling the Ephesians here in chapter 5, uh, to me there were a couple of beautiful word pictures uh, dealing with this. In, in loving like Christ, first the husband is to himself gives up for the sake of her. Hmm. So, you know, for all this submission, you know, that you uh, worry about with the one with the woman as the Holy Spirit role, hmm. the husband is to give himself up for her. Hmm. Uh, that's, um, yeah. that's quite a beautiful picture. Mm-hmm. And the reason, and I love it when you transliterate in this kind of word-for-word thing, it's uh, so that he should be beside standing her, was the way the words, he (laughs) would be beside standing her. So there, to me, is this beautiful picture. The husband has done everything he could have the wife be the best Mm. person she could possibly be, and now there he is standing beside her. So, yeah, that, yeah, that's awesome. That that's how it should be. Yeah, yeah it's it's a beautiful picture, so contrary to to what the world mm-hmm. can be so often. Um, so uh, when I was looking at this, I was thinking of an explanation, a quick, succinct explanation of the whole passage from a professor back in college. And at one point, I went uh, just for special religious studies 
uh, at a Catholic college. And you know somebody was uh, really stuck out to you when you still remember their name after 40 years mm-hmm. or whatever. But there was uh, Father Toner. That was his, I have Father Frank, but that was the name, Father Frank Toner. And uh, everybody loved him. He was just um, he was just the real deal. And his explanation for this Ephesian passage was so beautifully succinct. He said, according to this, marriage is two people trying to outgive each other. Oh, two people trying yeah. to outgive. So, I mean, and that stuck with me for 40 years and all that. So, you know, still trying to master it, of course. But what a beautiful goal. Yeah. So... Paul's given this wonderful description of marriage, but I I think when people read the Bible today, we have this impression they were living all these Victorian morals and speaking in these and those. In truth, what was domestic life like when Paul was writing this? Well, let me tell you. (laughs) Well, let's let's take a a truly historical objective view of, uh, uh, according to historians and how things looked in the ancient culture in which um, all of this was being written and formed. Right. Um, uh, for instance, in the Jewish culture, we'll start with the Jewish culture because that's where Christianity is rising from at the time. Right. And of course, Paul writing now, he's into the, into the Greek cultures around, but it starts in the Jewish culture. Yeah. Uh, for example, people might not realize, but polygamy was still um, a significant practice in the time mm. of Jesus. Even it was it was supported by what they call the ancestral custom, and there mm. were men out there who had four and even five wives. Wow! <laughs> it, 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 so that. I guess is why Paul mandates the husband of one wife in First Timothy. Yeah, uh, we had talked about this before, but this is just for leadership because there were you take somebody he comes to Christ he's got five five wives. Um, I don't think you should be a pastor of your church. Well, he, <laughs> I, I still I, I still like if he figures out that oh this isn't this isn't a good thing. <laughs> What what happens with the five wives? Uh, you know, I'd have to. Let's see. Which, you know, the first one, I guess, is the one. Uh, the 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 didache, The you know, there were rules, extra rules written along with the with scripture at the yeah, time, yeah. and maybe in there they say how they dealt with this. I don't know, but one thing's for sure: he wouldn't have been in a position yeah. to be a a leadership model. So I'm not quite sure how that that would come down, but yeah. but Paul is pretty adamant, and and for two reasons. One is yes, um, this practice, f- from his standpoint, in in the church, uh, you know, that's just something can't be practiced. And the second dealt with divorce mm-hmm. uh, because it was playing an extremely large part as well. Um, divorce uh, in the time of Christ was surprisingly, or the time of Paul was surprisingly easy in the ancient Jewish world. Uh, the Jew- the Jewish uh, culture, they still held, they revered marriage in a very high ideal. But once the ideals were shattered, like, say, cruelty or infidelity or incompatibility, uh, the divorce then became surprisingly easy to Even do. Even incompatibility? Incompatibility, which you know, I, I'm sure there'd be some serious proof to, to put it, put right. in there. But yeah. if it was somehow shattered uh, the ideals, um, then yeah. then divorce became quite easy to do. And, and what was a, a very tragic is that uh, in this 
originally the the wife had virtually no uh, right. recourse whatsoever in it right. but um by the new testament times um there had been at least a a, a council on divorce at uh, well let, let me back up with this so first and say this is that there was a consensual divorce if the if the divorce was consensual uh they did not need any court action whatsoever. All they needed was two witnesses. We agree we're divorcing. And it was as easy as that. Yeah. And unfortunately, the husband could put away the uh, wife, you know, uh, for virtually any cause. Uh, and the only recourse the wife would have had at the time was to urge, and I, I use that word urge, that the court couldn't dictate. They could only urged the husband to give her a bill of divorcement. Uh, so the situation, this is this is interesting because it ties into something that parallels our day. The situation became so bad that women started refusing to take on marriage contracts at all. And uh, one historian says, and so men grew gray and celibate, <laughs> you know, so uh, that's what it got them. So finally, they got this under control. Uh, to a degree, anyway, in the Jewish community, a Pharisee by uh, on the, in the Sanhedrin uh, by the name of Simeon ben Shittach, uh, he proposed a law they took on where women were afforded some level of protection through a marriage contract they call the uh, ketubah, and in it it stated how much the groom would pay the bride, like this was kind of like a, a reverse dowry set aside, mm -hmm. he would pay the bride in case of divorce. If, if a divorce came, he had to pay her this. Now, he was allowed to use this set aside money if he wanted to, but with the understanding if divorce ever happened, that he would have to uh, refill the, the the funds no matter what it cost him he would have to do and this this woman would then be paid this conciliation for for the divorce so. and there's even a form of that ketchuba in, in ketchuba uh, ketchuba yeah. yeah. um, in traditional marriages today uh, we had looked up on etsy and you can see all different kinds and um some beautiful artwork goes along with them and everything. And yeah, uh, now, now that's the thing. It, it, it goes along to today, but of course the form has changed. It's mm -hmm. kind of come, a, it's, it seems to me it's almost a cross between uh, what it used to be in old times and what we in, in modern churches would consider wedding vows. There's, mm -hmm. there's definitely more of a romantic side in it than used to be, but it's it's quite an industry. So yeah, mm -hmm. here's a, a brief description of, of what the uh, ketubah uh, looks like today. Mm -hmm. The ketubah is a pretty short, straightforward document, often handwritten by specially trained scribes, that condenses all of that down to the rights and responsibilities of Jewish partners to each other. It's not about love, although many couples choose to embellish the traditional text with additional, more romantic flourishes. Two honored witnesses sign it before the wedding ceremony. Though the ketubah is thousands of years old, it was way ahead of its time. It states clearly that a husband must provide food, clothing, and other responsibilities. It also spells out financial arrangements in the event of a death or divorce. Adding their own twist to the tradition, some couples append their own vows. It's a beautiful custom to hang up the ketubah in the home, to remind everyone of the beauty of the wedding and the commitments made.
Boy, that ancient Jewish culture sounds pretty harsh. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Uh, was it any better in the non-Jewish? Well, the fact is, uh, the non-Jewish cultures were far worse. Uh, the Jews were actually ahead head on this deal. So, how how is how uh, how, how so how so? <laughs> Tell me more. Uh, well, in in the Roman law, like you said, the, the Ketchuba, there, there was a. Um, at least there, there started being some protection for the wife. Right. The Roman wives had none at all. For instance, if a if a Roman wife was caught in adultery, the husband could could kill her with impunity. You know, the courts would just make mm. no judgment. However, if the wife in in a reverse situation found this out, it would be murder for her. So, not too good. Mm -hmm. And even Roman dignitaries confessed that the, the marriage in their day was it was really a necessary nuisance is the way uh, they described it. Hmm. And Roman writers of the day, man, when you when you get into the poets and, and the writers of affairs, um, they, they, they wrote some interesting things. And there was a book on love uh, that one Roman author wrote. And he said, essentially this, that uh, a man who gets angry over his wife's extramarital affairs is, is really uh, somewhat something of a a backward individual, <laughs> and uh, any man who was really a man would have at least one married woman uh, that he would be quote paying a yearly fee. Oh, so it was written that you know uh, it was also written this that uh, that a, a husband was merely a decoy for a woman's lovers. Wow! Uh, so, even the most respectable, respectable, what they call the dignitaries of the day, Roman men and women, they were married up to uh, nine times. And that's um, not counting all the affairs and everything. No, then put the all the affairs. And as a matter of fact, they're um, um, uh, being faithfully married to one person was so rare, such an exception that Vespillo, a Roman consul. Uh, uh, he he erected a tablet to his wife that honored their achievement that they stayed faithfully married for forty one years. I mean, oh it my. just was something rather unheard of. So, so we have an ancient form of the incel movement, right? The involuntary <laughs> yeah. celibates uh, they they were there, um, and marital infidelity it wasn't just routine but it was it sounds like it was expected and encouraged especially yeah. in yeah. certain cultures that that's just wild that you you weren't anybody unless you were you were, were doing running this. around yeah, yeah right. well and, and and this is important though the big reason we're bringing this out is that so often people read this the bible like mm -hmm. some sterilized bubbles this is the moral chaos this was the standard people were living by mm -hmm. when paul is writing these revolutionary um, standards for what a Christian marriage was meant right. to be. And why, of course, like I said, we go through these words and we give you the, the Greek and, and, you know, Hebrew, if the case may be, but just to, un, you know, understand more fully, you have to. Well, that and looking at the history. And, right. And Those together, it's just... Uh, well, and so you know, you can you can see see the big point of uh, of getting at this, right? We no. right, <laughs> and it's it doesn't leave modern society with much excuse. What applies then applies now, right? Uh, that's the thing. It's just 
we're still dealing with the same stuff. Yeah. So um, what strikes me in how writers in the different cultures, I mean, whether you're talking the Jewish, the Roman, the Greek, mm. uh, they all seem to come to the same conclusion. That there's kind of this resolve. This is what marriage looks like. And all of them say, and it's a living hell. <laughs> you know, here uh-huh. we are. So you say, well, <laughs> I guess it's not working for you, huh? So. And, of course, there always seems to be some good ones, despite the odds. But, mm-hmm. And here's my theory. Okay. The same features that produced those rare, rare marriages back then still are the same virtues that produce, you know. Marriages today. Yeah. And, and I, I think you find there's a lot of... Uh, lasting marriages. Lasting marriages. <laughs> and there's a lot of research. And now, of course, we say scientific because mm-hmm. they use, you know, sampling and statistics. But uh would agree that's actually actually the truth. And we poured over pages of research in modern times dealing with features that are common to long-lasting marriages. And mm-hmm. we condensed them into this nifty list of 10. Yeah. So let's do this. I'll read the feature when you unpack it a little bit. And by the way, these aren't in an order of priority. It's just alphabetical order. Right. So here we go. Traits of long-lasting marriages. And I might add, this was found in both Christian and secular marriages. Yeah. And, and that, research of right, marriages. <laughs> right. Which is, which is kind of, of course, Christians has its singular features, but it's uh, <laughs> it's amazing how <coughs> Excuse me, how much everyone knows the same thing. Right. Uh, now, okay, so let's start with number one. Love. Okay, love. And, of course, uh, if we're talking from the Christian side, we know the First Corinthians 13 thing. Right. It says love is patient, love is kind. It doesn't seek its own way. Uh, it's neither arrogant or rude. It believes all things, hopes all things. Um, it bears all things. In the um, secular side, of th- with love, they'll talk about emotion and, you know, resolving to keep the spark and the connection going. Mm-hmm. But all of it really does allow one thing that's important. Everything else that love might be, we all are out for the spark and all of that. But it's a choice. Uh, mm-hmm. Patience, kindness, all of these things. Um, you're deciding on a daily basis whether you're going to be doing that in your right. marriage or not. So right. lo- obviously, love you know, it's a story. Love number one. Number, number one. two, commitment. And of course, you notice we said alphabetical, so uh, I kind of lied to us there in a way that it's just that love was such a st- starting point that that we this did that. Mm-hmm. But commitment came up as a as a subset, and and like I say, we looked at a lot of research when we were doing this, and so sometimes different words or or nuances were used, and one is priority. You know, marriage works when it is a priority. Uh, Persistence is another one because it's always not going the very best. I I still recall it was a young couple I had in, and they kind of gave me a shock look when I said, there will come some point in your marriage when you will have every right to call it quits with that person. And they were kind of like, what? But the truth is there are things uh, that do come up, and it will be persistence and priority that keep you going. That's right. Number three, make sure I have three fingers. Communicate. (laughs) Communicate. And and of course, with the podcasters, you'll get away with it because they can't see. (laughs) Uh, Communicate, uh, of course, intimacy, um, that you're speaking with each other. Um, The the place of even humor in your communication came up. Mm -hmm. Sensitivity in, you know, uh, what the other person is saying. Fairness. Uh, forgiveness, resolving, understanding each other, um, empathy. 
um, examination. Um, communication, yeah, it's, it's just a big thing, and it's the opposite of a lot of the toxic things that we see in, in uh, marriages to, and in, in relationships today. Maybe we'll, we'll bring those up, too, in some of these other things. Hmm. Something I just thought about on that, I wonder if, if it has changed, if that has changed very much with technology, the way that people communicate today even between husbands and wives so much of it it's electronic now it can be and and but the same principles can apply like yeah. for instance uh, there was some simple things i remember um reading in simple ways of communicating love and everything <laughs> and uh this lady was saying a simple thing like leaving a note on the fridge that simply says uh love you today or something mm. i suppose you could do that with a text Hmm. Um, another thing um, in, in communicating love from a wife that she would simply drop a couple of Hershey kisses in her husband's briefcase or something. Aww. Yeah, and so, yeah, very sweet, <laughs> and, and literally. Literally. Uh, but so, yeah, I mean, but the same principles, You some of it you can do digitally, you know, hmm. in, in, in a text or whatever. So. Mm-hmm. True. Number four. Compromise is a big one. Oh, yeah. Well, and, of course, flexibility is another word that gets used there. You do have to be flexible. Maybe you're changing for somebody's schedule or somebody's preferences. You're great in that stuff. Is, is uh, If it's not a sci-fi, it's hard to get me to sit mm-hmm. down and watch something, and you've become so good about watching that stuff. So just compromising is a big deal. Yeah. Um, number five, fan and friend. Yeah, and and I put it that way because um, I've heard it said, you know, really great in two ways. One, people say that you're best friends with your spouse. Mm-hmm. The other way, way I heard it is you're their biggest fan, and I, and I love that one. Yeah. Um, we were trying to think of the dating. No, it wasn't the dating game. It mm-hmm. must have been the the marriage game or whatever we had been talking about. And um, the whole idea was how well did you know your spouse? Mm. So it's not some of the subsets make sense, like curious. Are you curious? What's your wife's favorite color or what's your husband? You know, just simple things. We did that at the church one time to, yeah. in, in a Valentine's Day program. And, and right. We it's did amazing that. how many how many couples didn't know certain things. Simple we, little things. Yeah, simple little and, things. And you're going, yeah, man, how did I not know that? Mm. And we were talking about one of our elders. Uh, one thing we did at the church that was different this year was we had a uh, an entry interview again, which was really just kind of an assessment of how people were doing. And there were a list of, of questions of just how they felt and thought about things. Mm. And, and Steve said he had a whole new respect for his wife uh, by the time they went through this interview because there were questions you just don't think to ask normally. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. he had those. Uh, some things I find in this being their their biggest fan and the best friend, so opposite, uh, a new word that's come up uh, in toxic relationships, things like gaslighting, yeah. you know, where you're, you're breaking down a person's mm. psychological profile rather than building them up. Mm-hmm. And to be someone's best friend or to be their biggest fan, you're supporting them and, and you're doing it in their strengths and you're supporting them in their weaknesses. You're not going to use them to tear them down. Uh, there's this, a sense of respect is always big. Um, that's one of the first things uh, I think I found in research is 
what makes long-lasting marriages is, is mutual respect. Mm-hmm. Um, and respect in what makes you different as well as what makes you the same. Forgiveness plays a large part in it. Gratitude, um, being grateful for the person you're married to. Right. Uh, encouragement, of course, of each other is a big one. Mm-hmm. So, uh, fa- Fan and friend is a big one, yeah. Need my other hand now because we're up to six. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> six. Okay. Humor. <laughs> well, that's great because I have to, in in the spirit of communicating, I have to say that holding my arm that way fell asleep. <laughs> oh, no, sorry. <laughs> I was saying, hand fell asleep. Uh, and of course, that's funny. <laughs> so there's humor playing in. But uh, it's amazing, you know, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Is that medical research has said that for the individual that uh, laughter, that saying that laughter is the best medicine. I it really, know, it's it, kept it, me. <laughs> it keeps you going. Yep. Uh, and the fact that in a relationship, if you can enjoy, they say one of the biggest things, and women may be smarter because in this, one of the biggest things is being able to laugh together. And more than one woman, this is what, you know, when you say, why do you like that guy? They'll say, because he makes me laugh. Hmm. And so, you know, I think women are on to something there. Humor is a big deal. Yeah, it yeah. is. Um, number seven, restraint. Restraint. And, and there's two things that came up uh, in different things um, that I thought they really had a point. One was in chemistry, is if you're married to somebody, hopefully you have chemistry with them. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, you can still have chemistry with other people. Even if you're not looking for it, you can have chemistry with other people. Right. Uh, you and I were talking about um, a, a young lady in one of your first jobs. Who, mm-hmm. It was her first entrance into the big world. She had come from a very small town that, you know, everyone knew everyone. And then she moved to this, she got married and moved to this new town. town and it sounded like her husband was kind of a... Mm-hmm. a cloistering individual and yeah. and when she get out and, and and discovered you can have chemistry with other people yeah. uh it didn't go so well mm-hmm. uh another one that was presented in this way they simply said a ridding ridding life of pornography mm-hmm. and quite frankly i mean there's books and books written on that but the fact is there's so many things that'll come in from that type of stimulus that's that um degrades in marriage that yeah. it's uh th- this is secular experts and they uh, they say it does something to the brain doesn't itself, it itself yeah. yeah so and we're not just saying prudy christian people we're saying mm. that that science um uh, secular experts have found that just as much it is a deadly thing for a marriage mm. um Eight. <laughs> shared values. Shared values. Well, that's an obvious one because maybe that ties in with your flexibility is <laughs> the more you're not thinking or valuing the same, hmm. uh, the more you're going to have to find places of compromise. And let's face yeah. it, if you look on a spectrum, if you reach a point where the values become so divergent, uh, there's going to be a point you, you, you can't salvage. Especially it. the most important values to yeah. you. If, if yeah. those aren't in sync. And all the all the chemistry in the world is not going to. And some of them, maybe that ties in with the curious. It's good to know in advance. You may have very different values. You just never even thought about it right. with children, that, yeah. that type of thing. And You uh, think that's a foregone conclusion, yeah, yeah. You know, but. Uh, or how you raise them or whatever. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and that can, yeah, that can blow up big yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. 
um, number nine, <laughs> team. 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 Well, the whole idea of team or teamwork and coming off what we just talked about parenting, there's a prime example is yeah. uh, you better be a team when you're parenting because yeah. parents, if you're not <laughs> presenting a solid front, believe me, your children, mm-hmm. whether they mean to or not, will they find learn a way. Fast. <laughs> it's like, well, mom said I could. Right. Yeah. Yep. That yep. type of thing. Or go to dad for that one. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah. and the other side of it is, is life is always changing. So you're either growing together or apart. Right. And, uh, and there, hopefully if you can be learning together as well, that'll be a major, you know, bond thing going on there. And our last one, number 10, is trust. Yeah, obviously trust is big yeah. when trust is lost. And trust it means, you know, giving trust, but it also means being worthy of trust. Yeah. So being truthful has to play a part in there. Uh, not brutal, but truthful. Uh, being objective in counting, being trusting that your spouse uh, will be objective, that when you something comes up that they're going to try and play fair with whatever that is. Right. Uh, emotional awareness is going to play in a part. You, if you're going to be three years old in your emotional development, you know, trust is not going to uh, hold up. Mm-hmm. And of course, candor is a big one. Is is um, just being open when things need to be open, and uh, that's probably, uh, you know, the, the tradition would say it's harder for a man, but I really question it in a way that. Full out candor. I think there are things just in being human that we don't even want to admit to ourselves. Oh, definitely. So, um, a candor with another person, uh, it's tough even being candid with yourself, mm. but it is a big player in trust. So, yeah. yeah. So, there's 10 features of a good, enduring marriage that researchers agree on. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to. Um, from the timeless virtues of marriage to mm. the virtues of song. <laughs> yeah, and talking about timeless virtue yes. and songs. I, I don't do segues as well as you. Yeah, no, that's because <laughs> a lot of them, I'll write them down in some strange form, and poor you have to try and follow them. But, um, the song we're highlighting mm-hmm. this week yes. is an old spiritual that um, found renewed popularity um, in a modern movie. Anything else you'd like to say about this? Yeah, I would because, um, you know, normally leave that on you, but this one just so moved me Hmm. when we decided to do it. it And it was in this, uh, uh, something different in the old spirituals. um, They were uh, pure worship and they were from people who had far less than nothing, really. And it really kind of drove, like this song that we're talking about is about people who are seem to be, they're excited, they're an invitation to go down. To, all they have is this space down by a river to go down and, and, and go before the Lord. And hmm. the entire song, the only thing that is precious, unlike a lot of the modern songs we sing, as good as they are, hmm. the only thing precious in the entire song is the promise of God. Hmm. And God Himself. That that's it. So it to me it was this powerful illustration that when believers and I mean true believers have nothing, that's when God becomes everything. Yeah. And um, so when you you um, listen or sing songs of people of that cloth, 
Yeah. Uh, it, it's really an awesome thing to see. Oh, that's neat. So here is Down to the River to Pray, also known as the Good Old Way. And until next week, be blessed. Be blessed. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about the good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown, good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, brothers, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Come on, brothers, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, fathers, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, fathers, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, mothers, let's go down, come on down, don't you want to go down? Come on, mothers, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sinners, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sinners, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown, good Lord, show me.